I'm Shafiq Abdusabar. Today is Wednesday, July the 27, 2016. This is Urban Talk Radio 103.5 FM, where you will hear conversation, information, education, inspiration, motivation from the American urban perspective. Urban Talk Radio is also being simulcast on New Orleans Talk Radio Network, N-O-T-N, an interactive media website that features 24-hour video streams, articles, radio, blogs, and information on social, living, and current news. Last week on Urban Talk Radio, we had discussed solving problems with bullets instead of words, ongoing series discussing the issues between the urban, urban community in America and law enforcement. Today on Urban Talk Radio, we want to revisit a topic that we talked about before, which is really basic. It's, it's the impacts of racial profiling. And we want to talk about how police-related shootings are impacting America across a broad stream. So today on the show, I have two extraordinary people. One has been on our show before, and that's over the phone out of Ohio, which is Dr. Ronnie Dunn. Dr. Ronnie Dunn is a PhD and author of Racial Profiling, Causes and Consequences. Also in the studio, I have retired Detective Hilda Kilpatrick. She has over 38 years of law enforcement service, also graduated from the FBI Academy in Quantico, correct? Yes. And uh, Hilda is also based out of New Haven. So good morning to you both. Good morning. Good morning. And I don't want to spend a lot of time this morning talking about things to happen. For the viewers out there and listeners, you can join this conversation on Facebook at Bold Minds and Twitter at Bold Minds. You can also stream this show live on your smartphone and computer by logging on to newhavenindependent.org. So it's been an explosive month in law enforcement. Hilda, I'll start off with you. You've been a, a police officer in law enforcement for 38 years, and I would imagine that you probably started somewhere around 1960s, the late 60s during the, um, the, the riots that we are now kind of revisiting in the modern day. What is, is things getting better? Is things worse? I mean, like just what is your perspective? <laughs> well, my perspective is this. I started working for New Haven Police Department December the 1st, 1969. Uh, that was the movement of the Black Panthers and um, the uh, BLA and, uh, and racial strife at the time. And one of the things... You, you ask, is it getting better? Uh, in my opinion, it's getting worse. Uh, yes, we did have racial problems back in the day, but it wasn't in, as, as inflamed as it has become now, you know, with people attitude. At least people respect one another, and, you know, they could talk about it, no matter whether you were black or whether you were white or whatever color. You, could, you, you know, you had a dialogue. But here's the difference, though. You know? Back then, you were a black police officer, right? You're hired, and you've got black people mad, and they want revolution, and they want right. all these different things. You had a, you had similar, at least in parts yes. of New yes. England, where you had the open carry laws, so you had black people, black panthers carrying right. weapons who made it very clear they were against the police. They were not um, enchanted 
with white people, right, right. Uh, or white authority, you know, but you were a black cop and you survived that, and it did not seem then people were turning around and killing police officers. No, they, 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 they wasn't at the time because, as I said, the majority of us had a dialogue with the people in the community, and that's the most important thing. You could talk to the people, and people got to know you. That's one of the most important things about being a police officer, no matter whether you're black, white, blue, green, or whatever, is having a dialogue with the people that you work with. Get to know them. And the most important thing is treat people with respect. Always treat people the way you want to be treated. You know, that was my philosophy as being a cop. Would I want someone to pull me over and, and you know, and degrade me and call me names? Of course not. And if you did, all you're going to do, if you did this to this person, you was going to create a hostile environment. Okay, when you when you go into a neighborhood, um, if someone asks you a question, don't be disrespectful to them. And if they say, officer, what happened or what took place? This is okay. Um, ma'am, uh, there was an incident. There was a shooting. Don't say none of your business because these people got information. And if you relate to them, maybe they can give you some information to solve the crime. Dr. Dunn. So, you know, Hilda has a good point. She gives the, you know, kind of a broad perspective, black police officer, female, black female police officer, 38 years (laughs) on the job. She says, you know what? It's about respect. It's about relationships. It's about your ability to talk to people. 1967 into the 70s, you had less black cops on the job. You had more white cops on the job. We did not yeah. have the data to track police-related shootings like we just started tracking now as of about maybe a year ago. And we had Ferguson, which was kind of a eye-opener for law enforcement. If you do this, this is going to happen. And then a series of shootings that led all the way up to the most recent in Baton Rouge and um, in Minnesota. I think the difference is before Baton Rouge and Minnesota, there were clear demarcated um plans of action that if you as a police officer engaged in this type of super controversial shooting, you were definitely going to get fired and you were most likely definitely going to be arrested. But the shootings continue. Why? Yes. Why, why do these shootings continue? Uh, you're saying police-involved shootings of African-Americans? Uh, yes. Police-related well, shootings of African-Americans, which in many, in, in many of these cases the African-American person that shot is often unarmed after, you know, after it's all said and done. Yes. Well, I would submit that it persists because I I don't know to what extent uh, any real changes or reforms have actually been implemented in regards to holding officers accountable Uh, There has been an increase in the number of officers that have been indicted, but yet we haven't had any convictions. When we look at the Freddie Gray uh, case, for example, uh, there there was one officer indicted for the uh, 137-shot incident or atrocity, as it's referred to here in the city of Cleveland. While he was indicted, he was acquitted. So until we start to see officers uh, held accountable and that coming in the form of some convictions, I would suggest that there, there really hasn't been any tangible, uh, concrete uh, accountability that citizens can, can see. 
so therefore uh, these or officers for that that matter is not a deterrent to that type of behavior so it persists and the situation only escalates and exacerbates to the point that we see these retaliatory shootings against law enforcement. So here's the thing. You have worked uh, in your studies dealing with the issue of implicit bias. Understand that you are a consultant to the governor there um, in, yes. o- in Ohio. And from what I understood, you also were involved somewhat in recommendations around the Cincinnati shooting. The University of Cincinnati shooting, is that correct? Well, not not the uh, University of Cincinnati shooting, no. Uh, I've been involved here in Cleveland. We're currently under federal consent decree uh, with the DOJ. So I've been intimately involved in that process here in Cleveland. And as you stated, I'm on the Ohio uh, Collaborative Community Police Advisory Board which stem from a task force uh, convened by the governor as a result of some of the high-profile shootings that have occurred here in the state of Ohio. And what have so here's the question that I have, you know, what have y'all done, right, because you're in the mix and we talk about Mm -hmm. accountability, obviously arrest is not a deterrent. So, you know, in in accountability, you know, the only thing that I'm seeing really is for, I just use the University of Cincinnati incident itself was the fact that the university paid four point eight five million dollars you know four point eight eighty five million dollars to the family right mm-hmm. so that might be a deterrent to the other officers because pretty much the university fired the officer um he did get up from my understanding he did get prosecuted I'm not sure what that how that process is moving and then, of course, then they paid out this large sum of money. They're a private institution, so they can make swift changes and other things a lot faster than other people, you know, whereas where it's a lot different when you're, when you're dealing with a municipality. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you talk about accountability, what, you know, but what does that really mean? Well, once again, uh, true accountability uh, will have to come in, in the eyes of the, the citizens would mean and indictments and convictions. And until you see that, I don't think that uh, it's going to really do anything to enhance the notion of accountability or legitimacy in the eyes of the public. Um, As far as the payouts, these cities are uh, the insurance they're covered, and that those large payouts at the municipal level, or in this case, at the institutional level with the University of Cincinnati, do not readily translate into a deterrent for the individual police officer. Mm. Uh, So uh, the city of Cleveland had spent over $10 million in uh, paying settling suits with with families for wrongful death or what have you, although they never acknowledged that in those suits. Um, And, you know, these behaviors of misconduct and excessive use of of force persist nonetheless. So I don't see the financial payouts as necessarily serving as a deterrent uh, or uh, equating to accountability either. It's just a no-fault judgment, basically. 
the, the municipalities don't acknowledge that they were wrong. That is a clause in most of these settlements, and they just pay the 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 uh, the, the families to, in essence, uh, resolve the issue and go away. Hilda. Yes. So you're 38 years on the job. Here's my question to you: As you're watching some of these videos and some of these incidents and shootings, and you know you you have a, a wealth of knowledge. In law enforcement, one thing that I know from all of the uh, information that I gathered where people focus and say, well, you know, it's white police officers shooting unarmed black men. And in many cases, when you dumb it back, you know, you can also say it's a situation of males who are often white male officers shooting males who are black male officers. But you don't see this happening with female officers. So under the concept that we both understand, I think my next breath is my last. I'm basically scared and I'm scared for my life and I'm going to use force to protect my life. In the concept of this, wouldn't it seem that female officers would be more in fear of your life quicker than a male officer, which would actually lend to the shootings technically should reflect more female officers shooting an unarmed male. You you know what? You definitely have a point there, but from my training and experience and working with other female officers, I think it has something to do overall with one's self-confidence. Okay? I worked um, in the projects. I worked in Newhallville. I worked in these areas that a lot of officers fear working in. Yes, uh, there was times that was kind of like touch and go. And to be honest with you, there was numerous times that I legally could have shot somebody and got away with it. Why didn't you? Well, I use restraint. Give me an example. Okay. One example. We was en route to um, on Valley Street. A call came in. They was, uh, we was going to 710 to get uh, gas. So a call came in that a kid had a gun and he was in the store in the corner of uh, Valley and um, what is the little side street over there. So the kid didn't see us because the bus was in front of us. How old was he? This kid was 14 years old. The age of my child would have been at that time. One of my sons. So we pull up, we pull out of our guns and we tell the kid to drop the gun. The kid For some crazy reason, he grabbed another kid coming out of the store and put the gun to him as a shield. So now we are in a situation. It's hot on a day like today. And people in the neighborhood is screaming like, don't shoot. So it's summertime? Yes, summertime. What time of the day? Uh, This was like about 430 in the afternoon. So it's hot. It's hot and everybody is out. Everybody's outside. And and people is aggravated from the heat. What year is this? What year? Oh, this is back. I think it was like, um, let's see. I had just came out in patrol. So it would have been like in 86. 86. No yes. commu- so there was no community-based no, policing. There was no community-based uh, policing. Crack wars had just right, begun. Right, right, right. So we, everybody bail out of the car, and we pull our guns, and we're telling the kid to drop the gun. So now I'm looking for cover. There's a dumpster. I'm small, like, slide under the dumpster. So we're screaming, drop the gun. People are saying, don't shoot. I mean, we are in a catch-22. Right. Here's a kid with a gun, and he's saying that he's going to shoot us, uh, and he's going to shoot the kid, and we can't shoot him because he's using the kid as a shield. So what do we do? We were trained to de-escalate. So we start talking to the kid. 
we started calming people down that was out there. Hey, listen, this kid has got a gun. Okay. Uh, so long story short. Here's a question that I have. Yes. Were you trained to de-escalate or was that just a a asset that you brought as an individual and other officers just automatically brought as well, an individual? Well, let me explain something to you. When people talk about training, when I was trained, okay, we were taught to de-escalate. We were taught, Harry DeBenedetta, um, uh, Captain Today, uh, Frank uh, Parati, um, who else was there at the time? Gene Harris. Now, the important thing, I think, right. for the, the listeners and, to know that's, that's, that's listening is that uh, one of the gentlemen that you mentioned was in charge then of the SWAT team. Right, yes. And the SWAT team was actually created in New Haven. Right. <laughs> and it was created for the purpose to deal with the Black Panthers. Yes. So basically you yes. had people right. who had hostage negotiation right. training, training. who was actually in the field. Right. So this was not this was not something that was necessarily signature right. to all law enforcement. No, it wasn't. Okay. It wasn't. So, you know, as I said, we were taught now when you pulled that gun out, this is what I would talk. I can't say, you know, the people that came out in the class with me, I can't say what other rookies would talk because I was never in that class. But one of the things they stressed to us, when you pull that gun out, you make sure that your intent is to use it. Never put your hand on the trigger finger. Never point the gun at no one unless you feel that that person is a threat. Now, this is what I was taught. Okay, could we have shot that kid that day? It have been justifiable. Yes, but because of our training to have discipline, you know, we didn't. And not only that, we didn't want to shoot nobody else in the community, and we didn't actually want to shoot the kid that the other kid was holding us hostage. <laughs> so we, it, so I mean, people look at police work, but things can happen just like the flip of a, squ- of a switch. I mean, when you go out on the road, you never anticipate that something like this is going to happen. And what do you do? First of all, your common sense uh, kick in. And I also believe that it has a lot to do with being secure as a person and not feeling threatened by the people in the community. There will be times that you will be feel threatened because there are always threatened incidents that take place. And I always tell people, as a law enforcement officer, there are times as you don't want to hear this, but there are times that we may have to kill somebody. That is part of our training. If you're just joining us today on Urban Talk Radio, we are having a discussion, a uh, previous discussion that we had on, on a topic, the impacts of racial profiling, and today we're talking about police-related shootings. You can join our conversation on Facebook at Bow Minds and Twitter at Bow Minds. You can also stream this show live on your smartphone or computer by logging on to newhavenindependent.org. And remember that Urban Talk Radio is now simulcast in New Orleans at the New Orleans Talk Network Radio, N-O-T-N, an interactive media website that features 24-hour radio, video streams, article blogs, and information on social living and current news. Dr. Dunn, you know, Hilda has a lot, had a lot to say um, in terms of yes. her abilities to, um, you know, actually be involved in a shooting and being able to go through the process now and think through the process. Something that I don't, I really don't think a lot of America hears, you know, America hears someone else talking about why the officer shot America hears 
someone else talking about um, what was in the mind of a police officer, um, mm-hmm. you know, and often, and no disrespect to CNN, you know, often that officer is not black and often that officer they're talking to is actually not female. And in fact, I haven't heard hardly anybody interviewing female law enforcement officers True. in the news You're to right. get their perspective. We're just getting these yeah. male dominated perspectives. Dr. Dunn, you deal with implicit bias. You know, let's talk about the male implicit bias. Does misogynistic behavior, does chauvinistic behavior um, behind the badge that, that we're not talking about, does that play a role? I mean, we talk about white privilege, right? We talk about egos. We talk about all these different things. But one thing we've never talked about is the um, hierarchy of just being a male. And yes. you're kind of, you know, I am the king, right? All the the the, the monarchy, can, we can call it the monarchy effect. Talk about that. Yeah. How does that play into potentially how an officer is viewed? Because females are not shooting really anybody. There's no rash of female officers. I mean, and there's right. female officers nationwide. They're coming on the job. They weigh 100 pounds. They're 5'2". They're, they're you know, you know, they're small frame. Right? Yeah, I'm one thirty-two, uh, five, okay, four so and a half. <laughs> one thirty-two, five. Look like uh, Cleopatra Jones off Pam Greer, right? Um, so, you have the can, the perfect condition, really. If a female officer says, "You know what? I fear for my life. I had to shoot," people would say, "All right, we get it." But they're not, and they're surviving deadly encounters. So, is it a male thing? Yes, yes. There is a significant body of of research that shows that female officers are less likely to use uh, deadly force or use force in general, and that women in general are better communicators than males. So true. They they use their communicative skills much better than, than we as males do, and therefore they're able to de-escalate situations, whereas a male officer of any race is more prone to use force. Now, within that, uh, the data and research has also shown that Minority officers or African-American, Latino officers, officers of color, are less likely to use force than are their white male counterparts. But when why they is do that? Use but why force, is that? What? When they do use force, uh, they are more likely to use that force against an African-American or uh, suspect of color than of than against white suspects. So even though uh, minority officers, and that goes to the point of discussing uh, increasing diversity. While diversity is very important within police departments, there is research that would counter the notion that just by increasing the diversity, that is going to be a, that there's a direct correlation and a reduction of the use of force. So that, that needs to be stated as well. Um, you asked why is it that white male officers are more likely to use force than our, our, our um, 
women or female officers and officers of color? Well, I think, once again, that goes to the implicit bias and this pervasive uh, stereotype throughout American society in general of African Americans, the, the violent, criminal-prone uh, stereotype of blacks in general, particularly the African-American male, the young black male in particular. And once again, that goes to this concept or notion of the brutal black buck, which once again takes us all the way back to slavery. Uh, you know, I teach a class, African-American images in film, and start with Birth of a Nation, that 1915 film, which helped institutionalize these societal stereotypes of blacks, particularly that criminal image of the black. So I, I would argue that that is what is at the root of a lot of these issues, and that's why the implicit bias training is important to begin to incorporate that into police training as well as screening. And I'm not saying one thing, we all are being socialized in a racially stratified society and this racial hierarchy in American society, we all harbor some biases, some implicit biases. And there's nothing wrong with that. The thing is, you have to be cognizant of it. Once you're made aware of it, then you can be, the training can help offset those uh, biases from affecting or influencing your split-second uh, decision-making and actions. So I have now Hilda passing me notes like the producer now. That's, <laughs> that, this is a new one. This is a new one. When the guest is note-passing you, right? So I'm a, I said I've got Hilda passing me notes. You know, she's passing me notes in five minutes, two minutes, but it's not a five-minute note. So I'm going to let you, Hilda, um, because, you know, this is such a strong topic for a lot of people and right. you know, folks often don't want to talk about it and hear it. Uh, first thing I want to ask you is this. Um, I've refrained from publicly making comments about these shootings uh, for a lot of different reasons, but I want to ask your opinion. I mean, these most recent shootings, the one in um, Baton Rouge, did you, first of all, did you see the, the video? Did you see the raw footage? Was you able to see that? And that was the CD man. That's what they're referring to. Yes. Okay, yes. So I saw, saw that. that. And then did you see the Facebook live video? Uh, yes, I did. Okay. And so as a retired detective and mm -hmm. you still carry a firearm. Yes, I do. Yep, so you're still you're under the uh, federal law right. allows you to yes. carry nationwide. So you have to qualify. You have to follow yes. the right. uh, state policy and your department's policy on right. use of force. So you're still technically in the law enforcement world. Somewhat, um, yes. Mm -hmm. When you saw those videos, okay. what, was your, what was your take My on it? My take on it, and I watched it over and over and over again because I wanted to put myself in that situation. What would I have done? In my opinion, now this is my opinion, that was a bad shoot, okay? Because uh, the guy is laying on the ground. In my opinion, when I'm looking at the video, I didn't see that he was a threat. They had him down. The other officer had the gun in his hand, and I don't know whether it was uh, accidental discharge or out of anxiety because, you know, when you're holding the gun, I, I don't know. But 
in my opinion, that was a bad shoot. Well, he flipped over him after right. the first shot and right. then fired several more Several shots. more. In my opinion, it was a bad shoot. As I said, every you know, being in law enforcement and shooting. So some officers are saying, well, right. you know, you need to understand that it was a gun call. Yeah, but you need to understand it was a gun call. Okay, how many gun calls have we all been on as a police officer? And the most important thing, when you get there with that gun call, you figure out what's going on. I mean, how many gun calls as a police officer? How many gun calls did you go on? Oh my God! At the time, thirty-eight years. How many gun calls? Oh my God! I went on. Oh, I could just say a hundred or more because how many by yourself? Uh, well, you always had a backup, but if it. If a, a call came in, um, like 109's at the corner of whatever, whatever, I said, Roger, dispatch it right around the corner. I go there. I didn't see anyone. And I said, do you have a 17 who called it in? The, no. So if I see someone standing in the corner, I would talk to him. I said, did you hear a gunshot? Did you know? No, we didn't hear anything. How many gun calls out of the hundred did you go on and somebody actually fired at you? Uh, none whatsoever so far. And how many gun calls over the hundred did you go on that? You or your partners or whoever showed up actually fired. Uh, matter of fact, none. There was no reason to because it was just a simple gun call. And sometimes people make gun call because they may be pissed off with the with, with the gang member. Um, they want to see some excitement. And sometimes people actually do it to get the police to arrive at a certain corner to quiet the no- noise down. I have discovered that. So just because someone say it's a gun call don't necessarily mean that there's a gun involved. But you always have to be diligent when you go because you never know what you're going to encounter. So yesterday, a young man, he's not, he actually is my age, but we both look young. I look younger than him. So Dougie, I look younger than you. I <laughs> <laughs> mean, Dougie grew up together. Not Dougie, but the another Dougie. And, um, you know, he asked me, he said, listen, when a police officer pulls me over, man, he said, he says, and I just want to ask you as a friend, we grew up together. He said, I just really want to know this question. If it's just for like a headlight or something like that, I don't be wanting to get out of the car. So I'm not getting out of the car, man. So, you know, can I just stay in my car and just tell him, no, I'm not getting out? And I said, no, no, man, don't do that. You That's, can't do no, that. No, right. No, no, and then he wanted to start talking more. And he says, you know, pretty much what he was asking is, can an officer create a condition where they actually put you and put themselves in a position where they actually can use force? And you're kind of like against the odds. So my question to you is, Hilda, you know, is that fe- you know is that possible where where you can set the stage to actually create a legal shoot or Would what you-, you perceive to be? You know, hey, it was a good- to me it was a good shoot. I don't care what you see as a public, but as a police officer that have worked those streets for years and been trained and 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 seen the things that I yes, it can happen. Let's be realistic. We're human beings. I mean, police officers are recruited from the human race, and we're dealing with human. And, yes, it can happen. Brother Sasek, if I can interject Absolutely. Here, Get in. That is, that is what happened in the Tremere Rice case. By not following proper procedure and police protocol, those officers created a condition where the use of force was, in, in essence, uh, more likely and, in their argument, inevitable because they pulled immediately upon this 12-year-old, which, as we now know, had uh, a, a fake uh, a BB gun, but at the time they did not know that. 
but they did not maintain a a safe distance distance Mm -hmm. to use their vehicle as cover to then try to de-escalate, disarm and de-escalate that situation. They pulled within feet of him and then within less than three seconds opened fire. And is, so is it, we, that is a perfect example of how the police can create a condition wherein the use of force is more likely. And with the Tamir Rice, I thought there was a report that the officer fired out of the vehicle. Well, he was actually exiting the vehicle. If you look at that vi- that video, he was he wasn't even erect when he begins to fire as Tamir falls. So. Uh, yes, immediately upon uh, getting out, and, and once again, he hadn't completely exited the vehicle before opening fire. Now, you know what's really interesting is uh, one of our former guests, Lieutenant Ray Hassett, who teaches a class on um, police engagement and de-escalation. He's trained most all of our department, I believe, and he's training people all around the world right now. And he uses a simple phrase. He says, slow it down. Mm-hmm. slow it so down true. right so true. and it's really interesting because when he first came to new haven you know people was like oh boy here comes lieutenant hassett because he played in the star wars movie and he's almost like a you know william shatner with his voice slow it down <laughs> slow it down but as it is corny for the public just like in uh you know former ronald reagan's thing say no to drugs it seems to have caught on throughout some areas of law enforcement about slowing yeah. it down. Now, we know that in law enforcement, there's a system of training that says, um, you know, jeopardy equals, uh, you know, time and distance. Mm-hmm. You give yourself mm-hmm. more time, you know, uh, and if you give yourself more distance, you give yourself more time. So I look at the CD man shooting and as I'll go with what Hilda says, if you would just give yourself more space, you have more time to react, put the gun down, yeah. get on your ground and the whole deal, um, same thing with some of the other videos that we see, you know. So is it really a situation of being, you know, we talk about bias, like, well, it's what's in the white officer who doesn't understand the plight of the black man, and we doesn't understand, you know, or really is it just slow down, <laughs> damn it. <laughs> like, just stop, wait, right, wait for backup, Give the person some distance. You can shoot at 25 feet. You already know that. And it's very clear from the last um, most controversial shooting of the mental health worker. You you can shoot with a rifle farther than that. Right. Um, yeah. So, you know, is it really just slowing down? I mean, does uh, and I, well, go, I, go, yeah. I, I would I think, yes, the, the training uh, clearly should emphasize that. And, and that clearly. Uh, would be an effective way to address a lot of these potentially uh, deadly encounters. But we have to ask ourselves, why is it, and and there's research that shows uh, computer simulated uh, uh, don't shoot scenarios that, uh, that show the decision to use deadly force is made more frequently and more quickly when the suspect is black versus when it is white. Do we have situations, gun calls, where there are white suspects that are armed that are uh, 
uh, deadly uh, use of force can be utilized or be justified, but yet how many of those incidents do we see not result in a deadly use of force? We have to ask ourselves that. You know, I, I, I'm reminded of the week that Tremere Rice was shot and killed within less than three seconds, if you recall this survivalist that shot two Pennsylvania Highway Patrol officers and was in the woods for seven weeks, and they caught him the week after Tremere was shot and killed, he killed one state trooper and wounded the other, yet they took him in alive, and he only had a black eye when they arrested him. I was amazed at that. So, and that's just one isolated incident, but I point that out because we know there are incidents where whites resist arrest, use force against officers, and kill officers, yet they are more likely to be taken alive and deadly force is less frequently used. Why is that? We have to look at both sides of this issue. Hilda Kilpatrick, retired detective, 38 years. Hillary Clinton seized the nomination for president. And I'm a Hillary Clinton supporter, so um, am I. I hope that she wins. I'll be speaking at the DNC tomorrow. Here's my question. She's the president now. She becomes the president. Uh-huh. She calls you up. Mm-hmm. She says, Hilda, I heard about you. I read your story. I heard you on Urban Talk Radio. Um I need you to come and help me address this issue in America, dealing with these police-related shootings. One minute, tell me what you tell her. That's your one-minute elevator speech. She's going to hire you. You're not looking for a job. She's going to give you the job. Job is done. So you're not selling me on the job. You're selling me on the solution. Okay. One of the solutions uh, when it comes to uh, police officers uh, killing um Blacks or unarmed suspects or whatever. One of the solution would be uh, is you have to have transparency. You can train a person, train them, retrain them, train, train, train. But if that person have that bias in their mind, they're going to sit in that class and they are going to get through it. And once they hit the streets on their own, they're going to basically do what they want to do. And in order for them not to do this, when they screw up, uh, when they don't do what the policy calls, calls them to do, they should be disciplined. They should be written up. Okay. And if there was a shooting, whereas uh, it was unnecessary force used, then that officer should be arrested. Okay. But because of the system, we do have to have due process. And I always tell people that, well, why can't a cop arrest an officer? We, we, you know, it's, we don't do that. Okay. You got to go through the due process, no matter who it is. Richard. Ronnie. Yes. You're there. So same, same thing. One minute. Just give me your one minute. What do you tell her? Well, what do you tell I, a new I president? Agree, I agree with uh, your your guest, the officer uh, Hilda. I think her name is that. You, it begins with accountability and transparency. 
but once again, I want I would emphasize that implicit bias training and screening. We have to screen these officers more closely to weed out those that do harbor, uh, you know, explicit bias that that they they act upon. And um, we what we need to do. We keep talking about reforming policing. I would say transform because to to it reform implies that there was some prior period or state where in policing and our criminal justice system in general uh, treated blacks and people of color in a just and unbiased manner. And if you look at our history, that has never been the case. So we need to transform policing in the 21st century, not reform. Um, and, and the criminal justice system, and mind you, the police are just the frontline administrators that are uh, responsible for carrying out the uh, the 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 in the, 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 the charges of the the larger society. So they're just the tip of the iceberg. There are racial disparities and bias throughout the criminal justice system, and. While we've reformed some of the practices under the war on drugs, what has not transformed is the policing. We've, you know, with this current current heroin addiction epidemic, we are no longer criminalizing drug addiction. We're taking a softer, more humane drug uh, disease model approach, whereas over the past 30 years, we criminalize people in these communities. So we have to acknowledge that and begin to to transform that and repair the damage that was done. And that is where we saw the erosion uh, of an already tenuous relationship between the black community and the police over the, the 30 years under the war on All right. All right. Thank you, Ronnie. Dr. Dr. Dunn, I'm getting the, I'm getting the one well, finger from the uh, from my producer now. If you just join us today on Urban Talk Radio, we look where we're looking at the topic and talking about uh, the impacts of racial profiling and police related shootings. Today's show guest was Hilda Kirkpatrick, 38 year law enforcement. Also, Dr. Ronnie Dunn, Ph.D. author of Race Profiling Causes and Consequences out of Ohio. And remember, Urban Talk Radio, New Orleans now being simulcast on New Orleans Talk Radio Network, NOT, and an interactive media website features 24-hour video streams, articles, blogs, and information. And remember that if you miss any part of this live broadcast, you can join our blog at BullMindCO. Keep current on our latest show and show schedules. Remember, Urban Talk Radio airs every Wednesday. Thank you. Thank you.